Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this, and that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Welcome to this week's episode. This week, I am sharing with you a conversation I recorded with Dr. Tracy Dalglish. She has a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Ottawa and has spent over 15 years in practice working with individuals and couples as well as training with renowned relationship experts. Dr. Tracy is the host of a podcast called I'm Not Your Shrink, which is a really wonderful resource and the author of a fantastic new book, I Didn't Sign Up For This. A couples therapist shares real life stories of breaking patterns and finding joy in relationships, including her own. She's also the creator of the Be Connected membership community. So Dr. Tracy and I are publishing sisters because we both just launched books with Pessy Publishing, and we are also both the hosts of our own podcasts. And for these reasons, we decided what we wanted to do was create a conversation that we could both share with our respective audiences. And I'm really glad we did because we had a lot of fun. She has a wonderful and warm approach, and I really enjoyed trading thoughts with her on everything from couples therapy to couples conundrums to the process of writing a book. I loved getting to shine on Dr. Tracy's fantastic new book, which I hope you will check out after this conversation. And I was honored to hear her thoughts about love every day as she was one of the first people to grab an advanced copy of my newest baby. I hope that you love hearing from Dr. Tracy in this conversation. Let's get right into it. Hi, Dr. Tracy. 
Hi, Dr. Alexandra. I am beyond <laughs> thrilled to be sitting with you today and having this conversation, and especially because I'm holding your beautiful book here in my hands. <laughs> it is stunning. And for people who don't have it already, make sure you go and pick it up. It is fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be sitting with you because you and I are publishing house sisters. You just published your first book, which I have sitting here with me. Your new book is called I Didn't Sign Up for This. A couples therapist shares real life stories of breaking patterns and finding joy in relationships, dot, 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 including her own. It's so beautiful, Tracy. You've done such an incredible job with it. And I can't wait to hear all about your journey and what it's like to have your book out in the world. So we're here as publishing sisters. We both publish our books through Pessy, which is a really just a wonderful publishing company that is so deeply invested in mental health and relationship health and a really thoughtful, like kind of walk the talk kind of a publishing company. And so it's, I'm, I'm happy to have that bond with you. And we both offered endorsements of each other's books. And I just am here to celebrate. I, I echo the same words. The team has been fantastic to work with and to be able to see how they've brought our work to, to life. The cover designs are beautiful. The connections with the editors and the marketing team, they've been fantastic to work with. So it is such a gift to be able to do this work alongside you. And also, I know that this is not your first book. And you have just been such a fantastic contributor to the world of building relationships, building what you call self Relational awareness. Mm -hmm. Relational self-awareness. Yep. Relational self-awareness. Yep. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's been, yeah, the through line and all of the work that I've been doing for the last 20 plus years. And I, I hope that there's many, many more books in me because I know that writing these books helps me continue the work that I want to do as a partner, as a parent, as a friend, as a family member, and professionally as well. I think that there's no shortage of need for books like ours because intimate partnerships especially are difficult. And that is what we're going to explore today is for as rewarding and fulfilling and important as intimate partnership is, it is incredibly activating and challenging and messy. And we need to have, I mean, I'm, my husband and I just celebrated our 25 year anniversary and I still need to be surrounded by resources that help me remember, you know, the partner that I want to be in this marriage. Mm, I love that you've shared that because it is such a truth in who we are as humans first, and then also the work that we do in the sense of how difficult relationships really are when you bring two people together with different histories and different early childhood experiences and how complex it can be to co-create your worlds together over a lifetime, over the long term, and just how much our relationships can change, not just after we have children, but also with the day-to-day -day stresses that we experience. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so we're having this conversation and it's going to become an episode of your podcast and it will become an episode of my podcast. And so for people who are listening, who are reimagining love listeners who don't know you and your work and your book, will you tell us a little bit about, I didn't sign up for this because the way that you've constructed this book allows you to be a very gentle teacher because you are first and foremost a storyteller. You tell us the story of four couples, one of which is you and your husband, right? Four couples total. And it's in the story that you're offering us an immense amount of insight into both the world of couples therapy and the world of relationships. So tell us a little bit about why you chose this format and what the journey was like to use storytelling as your vehicle for teaching. Mm. This book has been such a labor of love. And I know you can say that about your, <laughs> your journey as well with your books. I wanted people to read a book where they saw themselves in the stories. And I often found myself sitting in front of clients thinking, I wish you could see the client that was here just before you. Not in a way to minimize or dismiss their struggles, but in a way to show up with compassion and common humanity to say you are not alone in what you are experiencing. And you and I both know just how much shame people carry with them around 
the relationship struggles that they have. And I kept hearing the same message from people. I must be the only one struggling with this. Or there's something wrong with me that I'm feeling resentful towards my partner or that we can't work through this conflict that continues to show up. And so when I thought of what what would I want to communicate with others, I wanted them to be able to see the everyday struggles that couples have. And as I started to unfold those struggles through story, I also found and was deeply reminded of my own struggles that I lived day to day as well. That was parallel to what my clients were experiencing. And I say in the book, I've been a human a lot longer than I've been a therapist. And one of the things I know you and I have both seen throughout our careers is just how much therapy is changing and also how the therapist changes in terms of showing up. That quite early on in our training, we've been told, don't let other people see anything about you. Don't let your clients know things about you. And that's different than the self-disclosures that are used appropriately with clients in the therapy room. And what we're seeing is the opening of what therapists are talking about on social media. And that's not to say in therapy, I'm having a, oh yes, let me tell you about the morning I had with my kids moment. That's not what that is. But it it is a way of saying, yes, experts are experts with my air quotes. We are also human. And it is one thing to sit in front of a client in our objectivity, in our distance, with our training, with our experience that we've had, our knowledge, and then to go home and to struggle with the same very thing. We take our hats off. As I wrote the book, it felt like I was building a wall if I left my stories out of it. And that wall almost was to say, I'm not like you. I don't experience those struggles. And yet I know the most powerful thing that has shown up with my own clients is when they have seen me as human, when they can say, oh, Dr. Tracy, you experience this too. It's not just me, which led to the reason to include some of my story in the book as well. It is an incredibly exciting time to be doing this work. And you're right. It is so different than how I was trained and also how probably the early role models that I had who did, you know, a lot of this public facing work that you and I so value. I think there has been an evolution in how we get to show up and can show up. I spent a lot of time talking with young therapists and therapists in training and emerging in our field. And I think it's quite a responsibility for somebody who's coming into their career to figure out where those boundaries are and how to become really skilled at the art and science of therapy while also attempting to build a brand or find a niche or, you know, figure out what do you share and what do you not share. And I really, really encourage emerging clinicians to give themselves lots and lots of time. But you have a long, God willing, you have a really long career and becoming a therapist becoming a couples therapist especially, is incredibly difficult. And there's so much to be learned and so much repetition that you need to have to gain those skills and to just give people, I want especially emerging clinicians to just give themselves lots of time to figure that out because it is hard. And I would love for you to speak a little bit to a listener, kind of like a little bit of education about therapy in terms of how a therapist might use self-disclosure during a session with you? And then what might be some kind of problems or things that, you know, where a client might be like, oh, this is not feeling like a great self-disclosure. So can you get like, let's talk about like, what are some of those kind of rules of thumb around when and how we as therapists might use self-disclosure versus you just have a therapist who really has no sense of this. And the therapist is using too much of your time to talk about, you know, themselves. I do think there is a sense of distance between, it's a different kind of relationship that you have. So many, many clients will say, you know, I wish I knew more about you, or, you know, there are these parts that I I know this is a different type of relationship. So for the listener, you will have a different type of relationship with your therapist. It is a one-sided relationship. And at the same time, though, you do want to build a sense of trust and security and comfort with that person to share and open up with what's happening in your life. If there are moments where your therapist says something and you feel it doesn't center around you and the the struggles that you're having, or it feels a little bit too much like it's about them, that might be something that you start to question. Or even at the same time, I really strongly encourage people to bring up those 
you and I would use the word ruptures, the moments where that feels uncomfortable with your therapist to be able to say, you know, I'm not too sure what led you to share that, or that doesn't really feel good for me, right? That this is you practicing in the therapy room with the therapist to be able to set your boundaries and let them know. So that is something for the listener to keep in mind in terms of where your agency is in the therapy room where to find that boundary. Each client is going to be different. So when I'm in my therapist chair, I can ask myself, what is my reason for sharing this right now? Is this coming from something inside of me or is it about helping the client to move forward in their own journey and the work that they're doing? And if it's something inside of me as a therapist, that is not something that I'm going to share, something that I'm going to make a mark of, come back to later, do some self-reflective process or consultation or do my own work. In the therapy room though, if there is something that the client is struggling with, it's often around shame, but it really does depend on who the client is, right? Um, There's very much the interpersonal piece of of working with shame and being able to then say, um, to normalize and to humanize their experience. But the goal of that self-disclosure is always to help the client move forward rather than it being about me in some way. Mm-hmm. You've said a couple of really, really important things I want to put a big spotlight on. One is I really want listeners who are also clients to know that feedback of your, like giving your therapist feedback is vital. It is appropriate. It doesn't mean that you are right and your therapist is wrong because we don't, we really try to not bring that right, wrong framework into a therapy relationship, but it is a therapy relationship. And so your therapist has been trained in how to work with feedback and how to sit with you, like almost go shoulder to shoulder, the two of you, and look at the rupture, look at that moment and run it through a couple of lenses because you as a client might have had a reaction to what your therapist said based on your stuff, the stuff that you bring in. Your therapist in that moment was reminding you of your mother or of your ex or of your older sister, whatever it is. And so your reactivity in that moment is shaped by your prior experiences and or your reaction in that moment might be that your therapist, right, is just a human. And, you know, she's a little hungry. She's a little overwrought. She's having a hard time remembering what's mine, what's yours. And so she, in a moment, you know, said more than what was helpful or said something in a way that was more like a discharge of her experience rather than something that really is useful. And if that happened, she might still be a really wonderful clinician for you. She might just need to make a repair and the two of you might need to make a repair. And what the research has shown us is those empathic ruptures, when they are repaired, end up making for an even stronger therapeutic alliance. And that's true in all of our relationships, friendships that go through, you know, a little wrinkle that gets smoothed over, that friendship deepens. And that's also true of a relationship with a therapist. When my clients take the risk of bringing me something or saying, if a couple comes to me and says, Alexander, we really felt like last week you were siding so much with me and not my partner, or this didn't land for us. It is sacred. I mean, I have my own Alexander reaction because I don't want to be a disappointment. I want to do right by my clients, but it's so sacred. I get how brave it is to bring this up with your therapist. And I want to meet that moment in a way that we can really use it. So the point that you made about feedback and the value of feedback is like spot on. I could not agree with that more. Absolutely. Like all relationships, we are constantly gathering information about the other person and checking things out and testing things. And again, then getting more information and revising our scripts and how we understand other people. How your therapist responds to you sharing feedback is also another piece of big information. As you just said, Alexandra, that that feedback is sacred to you. You can see that it's, you know, there's some Alexandra stuff in that moment that you deal with that on your own, but that feedback is so sacred and it should be. And we, we want our clients to come to us and give us that so that we can work through it and do that repair. If you give feedback to your therapist and you feel like you get even more stuck and it's maybe they're defensive or they don't take in that feedback or they don't process it with you, or maybe you feel dismissed in some way. Again, we're not saying they have to agree with you, but there's a space of 
processing and working through that, again, that's more information about, is this the right therapist for me? Right. Just as intimate relationships are at-will arrangements, a therapeutic relationship is an at-will arrangement. And certainly a client can set a therapist up to hear feedback by being measured, by choosing words carefully, by not coming in with like a, you're a terrible therapist or you ruined my life. You know, I think there's ways we can set our therapist up well to hear us, but you're right. A therapist who becomes defensive or punitive or shuts down, if they aren't able to come back and repair that, right, it's it's too much to ask a client to be like carrying the weight because as you said in the beginning, it's, it's a one-sided relationship. You are not on equal ground. The other part was about making sure that what your therapist self-discloses is tied to your situation. And when I think about the times I have self-disclosed with my clients, it often is about like that kind of attempting to soften the edges of shame by saying, I get that, I've been there, you know, that you are not the first or only person to have that experience. So it's an attempt to kind of connect around that. But you're right. It's the therapist's responsibility to make this not now become about me and my story. It's me sharing this in the service of helping you, client, stay in this difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. Circling back to the work that we're doing today, it's so interesting to be on social media, to be sharing podcasts with our partners as well, because then quite different from what we were trained in, our clients had the potential to know things about us that they wouldn't necessarily before. And I can even remember having this conversation with a colleague who got engaged and decided to not, and actually did end up getting married during our residency and decided not to to wear her rings because that was kind of that, that sense of that boundary between her and her clients and the information that she wanted to share. And then it's so interesting because then you and I have this other layer at times with clients who come in saying, I've read your book or I follow you on social media or, right? And so there's this other layer. And I I think that is also something for listeners as clients to be aware of is having that sense of separation from your therapist, of wanting to not build narratives outside of that. And I always encourage my clients not to follow me on social media. One, because I can't ensure their privacy Um, because I have a team of people, Um, but two, also just to create a little bit of that barrier, that separation, so that I remain that objective outside person rather than perhaps any projections that come up, which kind of comes from both sides because I'm curious if you've had this experience, but I did have a client who had watched my stories one day on Instagram and saw myself share a really hard parenting moment. And it was a client who actually had built a lot of walls in our therapeutic relationship. And then afterwards came into session saying, I saw your stories. I now see that you are human and you're struggling with the same things as me. And that tore down her walls in the therapy room, which was such such an interesting experience. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying about it. it needs to be kind of a case-by-case basis or even like a moment by like sort of a chapter of a therapy relationship versus a chapter of a therapy relationship. And again, I think if you if your therapist is somebody who has a social media following and you're following their work and you have a reaction to something they've shared, that becomes grist for the mill. You can bring that to therapy and say, when you shared this reel about whatever, a conflict with your partner or a parenting moment, I had a reaction to it. Wonderful. Let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I have to note one of the things you said in your book, and I want to hear what led you to this beautiful piece of work that I know I'm going to recommend to so many clients. I'm holding your book, Love Every Day. I would love to hear the process of how you decided to write it in this format. But I wanted to first say, Alexandra, that you are probably the first person's work that I have come across who has cited Iyanla Venzin's work. I love her. I've loved her for so many years. Are you a fan as well? Yes. And it was so interesting because I know that the book that I read in the meantime was a book that helped me through one of my biggest struggles in my earlier years, through a relationship breakup, actually. 
you know, I think in part it's because my best friend is a shaman. So I, you know, and she's always been an incredibly spiritually gifted gal and we've been best friends since we were 10 years old. And so I am as comfortable on, you know, Northwestern University's database as I am sitting with spiritual texts and my deck of cards, my, you know, spiritual guidance cards that I use. And so that whole world of spiritual teachers have been of such tremendous value to me. Like I certainly love my mentors and heroes within our field, the field of mental health, the field of relationship health. But I know darn well that my own healing journey and who I am and how I show up for the writing and teaching that I do has been incredibly enhanced by folks who occupy more of that spiritual realm, like Yanla does to me. She's more one of those spiritual teachers and kind of wisdom carriers. And I know that I'm stronger for being able to kind of work comfortably in both those worlds, the world of science and the world of spirit. Mm, I love that. I so appreciate that about the work that you offer us as well. Okay. Tell us about the book. So I have always, I've always loved a one a day format. So right. I've written two books that are more traditional chapter books. I have loved those. I love the books where you really do need to read them start to finish. And the book takes you on a journey. I have such immense like value and respect for those that format, but I've always loved a one a day. I think it's because I think it just like fits that part of my brain that loves order. Everything goes in little, you know, kind of like little boxes and a little sequence and you get kind of a little bit each day. It's like a advent calendar or like mm-hmm. something where you just get like little morsels each time. So that, that has always really suited my like personality and constitution. And so then just based on a whole backstory we don't need to go into, Pessy and I decided to partner together around a book in this format. And it was so much fun to create, to take, you know, I've had this really robust Instagram feed for many years now where I'm on almost every day figuring out what is a little offering? What's a little, where do we turn the kaleidoscope and kind of pause and deepen into this one, you know, domain? And Instagram posts are so ephemeral. They're there and they're gone. And I get so many DMs each week, as I'm sure you do, from people who are like, remember the one you did a couple weeks ago? You know, like, or maybe they didn't need it then, but they sure as hell need it now, you know, and it's gone, right? Like it's somewhere in the feed, but Lord knows how you're going to find it. And so there just was like, there was this idea of how might we capture really a collection of these. And so it's not a one-to-one transfer of Instagram to this book, but there certainly is for people who really know my feed, they'll be like, oh, now I have this collection and I can refer and reference. And we categorize the entries in different ways. So maybe on, you know, October 10th, you love that entry and it speaks to you and you can work with it and or bring it to your partner. But if it's not, if that one is not speaking to you and you need something that's more around self-compassion, we've categorized them all and there's different color coding. And so you can just flip to that color and read that entry and work with that. So it really was a, it's a really fun format. I think it's a format that frankly parallels intimate relationships where it's about the little stuff. You know, it's not intimate relationships are healed, not by the one declaration or the sweeping, you know, effort. It's about the little micro shifts and changes and tweaks and efforts that each partner makes on a daily basis. Which is so true for our experience with couples in our room, don't you think? And I think that's the piece that you and I are aware of is that when couples come in, they have had all of these moments build and build and build until they've tried everything possible. And then they're coming to you. And that was the first thing they told us of our training in our PhD was remember your clients show up having done everything possible before they come to your therapy room, which was more true in 2006 than what it is today. We're seeing that shift in terms of the narrative and how we understand therapy. But what that really reminds us is your relationship didn't get here through one, necessarily one big moment. Sometimes there's a marker. And so it's not going to change or evolve or grow also just by one big moment. I want to highlight one of the days because it was so beautiful. And for those who have the book, it's May 31st. And you said to love someone requires us to wrestle with acceptance. And that we constantly struggle, you say, with the tension of acceptance and the reality that change is hard. And you encourage us to look at shedding 
and expanding. I would love if you could just speak briefly to that because it's, it's that one day nugget that was so big, May 31st, if you have the book, that's the day. But I'd love to hear, hear a bit more about that. Yeah. I think that there's all kinds of reasons that we struggle with acceptance of a truth about our partner, of a trait of our partner, of a quality. You know, it feels like settling. And I think especially for those of us who pride ourselves on being ambitious, of being unafraid of hard work, of rolling up our sleeves and doing hard things, it can feel like acceptance is like a shoulder shrug and a give up. And I think what's difficult is that when we have identified something about our partner that is driving us crazy, oftentimes the things that we're doing to try to get them to see it and get them to be different become as offensive or safety eroding or connection eroding as the thing itself, right? And we forget that sometimes it is by allowing our partner to be that way and seeing how we might move with that or reposition ourselves that actually creates change. It is acceptance of something in somebody else can be an opening for change. I think there's very few of us who want to change because somebody has, you know, kind of pointed it out and pointed it out and pointed it out. And so there's always like another angle of like, what is it about this quality of my partner that I'm struggling with? What does it remind me of? What do I worry about with this quality? So it is oftentimes our own, the thing that's driving us crazy is highlighting something inside of us that's warranting our attention. Yes, there's that self-reflective piece. The what is it inside of me about this piece? What's happening for me? And we know that. It's, it's even the, the principle in what we do with people in therapy is we know that if you tell someone to do something, they will go and do the opposite. We as humans don't like to be told something. So I, I love that practice of being able to see what is this about ourselves? Can we allow this as a way of growing and moving forward? Because one of the biggest questions that I often get is, what if my partner isn't doing this work? Yes. What if we, right? Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that question? It's the question that I got. I couldn't believe how many times that was the question that I got when my first book came out. Is like, I'm here for it. I'm here for relational self-awareness. And for you, it probably is. I'm here for looking at our relationship. I'm here for couples therapy. What if my partner is not? Tell me some of the some of the places that you kind of guide people around how to sit with that really painful you know, sense of like this, my partner doesn't get it. My partner isn't as emotionally aware or invested in this as I am. I love to go into what that would mean for them. What would it mean if your partner were on the same page with you? What would it mean about you in the sense of how you understand that and what it would give you? And so if we can sit with that and explore it, we can then start to see what the need is in there and what is something that we can start then giving to ourselves. Because if we keep looking outward to someone who isn't able to give it to us, well, again, we get stuck in that loop. If you could just, if you just did more of this, if you were just more like this, we're going to get stuck. We're not allowing, we're not accepting. So can we then go inwards and ask ourselves, if my partner were doing this with me, what does it mean about me? What is it going to give me? And can I actually allow space to grieve this here, to grieve this loss that I had hoped for a partner to mirror back this to me and they're not able to. It doesn't mean there's necessarily something defective and I need to end our relationship right away. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does indicate, what can I start giving myself through this process? I like to remind people that you are doing this because you are here and that you, at the end of the day, you have the agency within yourself to say, how do I want to show up in a life that's meaningful for me? If we're looking to the other person, that's not looking inward to ourselves. So when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, can I say I acted in alignment with who I am and with what is the most meaningful parts to me, knowing that I don't get to control or make someone else change? Yeah. You know, and the strength of the longing in an intimate relationship speaks to the strength of the bond. It speaks to the ways in which intimate partnership has the power to uniquely activate our own unfinished business, our own wounds from the past, especially from family of origin. And so what you're doing by inviting people to look at what is this need, this craving, this longing that you want your partner to give you, it is so powerful because 
very likely that is something that started long before your partner got here. And I, I think that idealized idea of if we have a good relationship, I won't hurt, I won't yearn, I won't long. We come by that, not just because of the power of the relationship, but we come by that because that's how we're socialized, right? We're taught, you know, through Disney movies and rom-coms and, you know, all of this, that we, this is how it ought to be. And if you have to source your, your contentment from lots of people and lots of relationships and lots of self-practices and somehow you are settling in your relationship. What would you add to that if someone were saying the same thing? I think this question is one that I get almost all the time from women who date men or women who partner with men. It is very often, I hope that in my lifetime, we get to a place where I've got as many men complaining about, you know, female partners who are not as relationally self-aware, but so far we're not. The tide hasn't changed. We know you and I know from publishing books that the vast majority of people who buy, I didn't sign up for this, are going to be those who've been socialized as women. And, you know, same with my books. And I'm so grateful when it is a male partner, no matter who the gender of his partner, when a male partner has, you know, initiated a, a couples therapy call or has picked up a book, like I think that is such a wonderful subversion of all of what he's been taught, you know, because he's been taught to whatever, not cry, not talk about feelings, equate emotions with neediness and all of that. So I think that when it is a woman, especially who's dating a man, I think there is like, we do need to be expecting more and like helping to continue to shift all of this socialization that we do of boys and men, while also knowing that it is very often the love of a woman that takes a man into his own work. That doesn't mean she's responsible for it. Doesn't mean that she needs to be you know, in charge of it for him. But it may really be that it is in the context of him loving her that he is putting language to this for the first time. And so I think there's a difference between a partner who is, you know, making an effort but clunky as hell and a partner who has got their arms crossed and holds self-reflection in contempt. So I think I would add Mm. that part to it. Mm. Yeah, how important that is to recognize that it's, is is there someone in there who is maybe not getting it, but is trying and continues to hold values within the relationship, right? We're talking about respect and trust versus the other partner who is not in there, who is contemptuous, who is shut down and refusing. And that's really hard to look at it as well. Yeah. I think we've made a lot of progress around destigmatizing therapy in general, but to me, it seems like we have a long ways to go towards uh, reducing stigma on couples therapy in particular. I think your book is going to be an essential part in terms of like pulling back the curtain and really normalizing couples therapy. But what do you think are some of the common misperceptions of couples therapy that may keep people from being willing to give it a try? I think this is a really important one to call out, especially given, um, is, is it fair to say this today? I'm curious what you think. Are, we, we were not always a profession that was predominantly women, if we go back to Freud's time. But now my sense is that we are a majority women in this profession, I think maybe it's fair to I say. Yes, when I, yes, right? Our, just looking at one program, which is the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Northwestern, it is definitely many more female identifying folks than male. Yes. For sure. Yes. Right. So so that I think is one of the first problems that we need to address because when it comes to the heterosexual relationship, commonly men say, I don't want to be ganged up on by you and my wife. And that is such a, a misperception of therapy that I'm there to find who's right or wrong or sides of an argument. And actually, it's one of the first things that I always say is there are going to be multiple truths. And our work here is to be able to build skills and tools to be able to get to that place of understanding each other and then to solve our problems. We're, we're not taking sides here. And again, you used the analogy earlier which is what I offer my couples is we're shoulder to shoulder in this looking at the problem in front of us so that it's not a who's the bad person in this dynamic. And so much of that work too is being able to reframe what's happening between them as there's a dynamic between you. Let's put the dynamic in front of you and that's something that we want to change. So it's not, this isn't going to be a blame game and I won't let it 
become that. So I think that's the first biggest one that really comes to mind. What do you think? What's a common misperception that people have around couples therapy? I think that's a huge one is a deep fear of being blamed or ganged up on. I think that is exactly, uh, that's exactly right. I think another fear, I think it's the stigma, the idea that if we need this, we're doomed, that it feels like it's a poor prognostic indicator. And so I think especially especially if I'm working with a couple that's fairly early on in their relationship, they're getting ready to move in together, they're engaged, they're newly married. I think that that heaviness and that shame can be even greater. And so I am explicit right out the gate that it is, to me, is a sign of strength and a reflection of the depth of their investment that they are doing this as early as they are. And we know that one of the entries in the book is like, we all bring baggage into our relationship. It is the brave among us who are willing to open up the bags and look at it. And it it is so much easier to kind of create shifts and change with a couple who's gotten lost in this pattern for a shorter amount of time than a couple where they're years or decades in, which does not mean that a couple who is years and decades in ought not go to therapy. We change is always possible, I believe, but it certainly is. I mean, I, I take a dose-based approach to therapy of doing a dose of therapy, stepping away, doing another dose of therapy. I've been practicing now for so long that I have couples like that where they'll come in for a bit, step away. I'll hear from them again down the road. They'll step away. And so I really like that framing for a couple of, this is actually a resource that we will pick up and put down throughout the course of our relationship, whether that's a normative transition that's kicking our butts, like moving in together or having a baby, or whether there's something extraordinary going on. There's been, you know, a, a fight they can't see through or a loss of a job or a health crisis, but to really see it as a reflection of investment and something that works. Like the data is really clear that couples therapy does work. And actually the things that couples are working on tend to, in fact, not remit on their own. Yeah. Gosh, I know that. I know that individual therapy is still something that people talk about now as my therapist said, or I'm off to therapy and wait till I tell my therapist about this. And that's fantastic. And yet rarely, and again, this was the motivating part of the book as well, is to open the dialogue around relationship challenges. That's not to say we're going to be at the park while the kids are going down the slide and airing all of our dirty laundry out in that kind of sense, right? But it is a sense to normalize saying, yeah, our relationship really changed once they started that job or once we had our child. And, you know, it's been hard for us to connect. And for whether it's the the dads where, you know, I had this conversation on a podcast recently where he said, the couple that I was sitting with, he had said, well, yeah, I don't, I don't show that vulnerability with my fellow male friends. And wouldn't it be so powerful to be able to actually open up that door to remove the shame around changes and struggles in our relationship? And then the same goes for, for moms, but people in general, just to be able to say, yeah, things have not been so great. It's actually been hard. And for someone to say, I get it. We've been there. Or we're in, yeah, us too. So that piece around couples therapy, I think is still really challenging where it's more accepting to go to individual therapy. But if we're going to couples therapy, then there must be something fundamentally flawed in our relationship. And yet I love how you frame that in the sense of, especially going earlier, we can discover things about us that we don't know. And it's like, it's like the oil in my car. I don't know how to change the oil in my car. I don't know how to deal with the check engine light and nor am I going to read all of these books and then be able to open the hood and know where all of the things are. And so I'm going to go to the specialist for that who is going to have the training and the knowledge and skills to help me work through my check engine light. And that's the same for our relationship. I was reading a chapter in the handbook of couples therapy recently. It was a chapter about common factors, like sort of 
these researchers who have looked kind of across all the different models. There's a lot of different models of couples therapy. There's emotion-focused therapy. There's Gottman therapy. There is uh, integrative behavioral couples therapy. There's you know a number of different approaches. And then there's been some researchers who've looked across all those different models and looked at sort of what are the common factors. And one of the big common factors is that idea of the three of you building a team, you know, and that feeling. And this, the writer of this chapter was saying that he ran into a couple of his years later and they started to have a conversation about the work they had done. And the couple said, I think the biggest thing you did to help us was you just believed in us. You helped us remember that we're more than our problems. And there is like a marriage is a heavy thing, you know? And so to have somebody in there with you who cares, like who's invested and who can help both of you remember that you are more than your problems and that there is goodness here and there is health here. Because when we're in, especially a relationship problem, like the problem itself is hard, but the fear about the problem. What does this say about us? Where is it going to go from here? Are we, is this going to break us? And especially for those of us who grew up in divorced families, we've seen that a problem can break a relationship. So to have somebody in the trenches with you who can kind of keep their head above water is just invaluable. Some of the stories that stand out for me from my clients include ones where a therapist made a judgment about their relationship. I always like to take that step back and say that nobody can tell you where your relationship is going to go. I don't have a a crystal ball. I can't tell you that. It's all going to depend on each day, each moment, each choice that you make. And we had circled back to earlier, you and I had talked about what what does it look like for a therapist to make a self-disclosure, what's appropriate or not. And and that would be something to to look out for if your therapist is making a judgment about your relationship. It's not for us to be able to know. And, and truly, I don't know every moment of what happens in a relationship. We get a slice of it in therapy. So I love how you frame that in the sense of we are working through this together. When would it be best for someone to consider individual therapy instead of couples therapy or maybe even alongside couples? Yeah, I was wanting to get into this as well because the program, the Family Institute, where I taught for many, many years, you know, we have our general approach is if one person calls for therapy and wants to do individual therapy, but the therapist gets a pretty clear sense early on that this is a relationship problem, we really do train our therapists because we're training people who who can work with a relationship to just bring the couple in. And I do think that there's, like I remember this is a research finding that's probably 20 years old now that was if a woman has a depression diagnosis and there's an amount of relationship conflict, actually couples therapy is going to be more effective at helping her with her depression than individual therapy is going to be. So I really do want people to err on the side of couples therapy, even if it scares them. I know that it's not always possible. And if you have a partner who, you know, will not go, I think then starting individual therapy is helpful. But I spend a lot of my time educating and training therapists to make sure that they're thinking relationally, even when they're working with one client. I think what, one of the risks of individual therapy is if I'm your individual therapist and you're talking to me about your husband, you're my client. I'm in your corner. I adore you. And so there's a risk that I'm going to be consciously, unconsciously, really, you know, boosting you and diminishing your husband's perspective, you know? And so I think that is, if somebody is going to do individual therapy instead of couples therapy, I do want that therapist to be practicing what one of the founding fathers of family therapy, Naj, called multilateral partiality, like really thinking about, okay, so Tracy is telling the story. How would her husband tell the story if he was here? That's really, really important for an individual therapist. And so then you as an individual client can help your therapist do that by not simply dumping to your therapist about what a schmuck your partner is. Like really saying, let's make sure that we're talking about my part in this and what I did, my role in it. So I think that's, I think those are some of like the risks and pitfalls of bringing relationship content to individual therapy. I can't remember the numbers now, but I think in recent articles I was researching on, it was 60 to 70%, I think, of individual clients showing up with relational problems. And 
it's huge. And, and of course, I, I say to my clients, you know, we don't live in silos. We live in the context of our relationship. But then it comes back to, and listeners can think of this in the sense of how have I approached this conversation with my partner? Is it a heat of the moment when we're escalated and you say, we need couples therapy or you need to find a couples therapist? And and that, of course, doesn't invite the togetherness of entering into a safe space. It really says you're the problem and so you need to try to find a way to fix it. But oftentimes, even in that individual work that I do with clients, we'll talk about how are you having this conversation with your partner? How have you shared the concerns with them and how therapy as a couple might move you forward rather than it coming out in the heat of the moment? It's really challenging because I know some people are not willing, wanting, or ready to do that work. Yeah, and so then in that situation, you would still want somebody to do their own individual therapy if their partner isn't ready or available for couples therapy, right? You would want them to be, yeah, still getting themselves support. And as you're saying, even like in that individual therapy space, making sure that you and your individual therapist are considering your partner's perspective, which is, I think, you know, I think it can be a blend. I think there can be like a little bit of a pity party, you know, and then, okay, let's figure out how we're going to think about this in a little bit more of a, of a broad sense. Okay. But we didn't get to the part that you were asking about, which was individual therapy alongside couples therapy. And I, I have lots of cases, you know, this is definitely something that people need to have the time and the financial resources for, but I really do love when it's possible and when it is called for to have two individual therapists, and then one couples therapist. And there, can, there can be times when that's a really lovely way of working. And I think it's incumbent on the couples therapist to kind of coordinate that team and to ensure that everybody is rowing in the same direction. So I do a lot of that coordination of care and not ever as much as I would like to be able to do because time is limited, but I want to have a sense of what's happening. If I'm the couples therapist, which is usually the way that it goes, I want to make sure that my clients have given me permission if they're comfortable to talk with their individual therapist. And when I'm talking to the individual therapist and sort of reporting in on, you know, how this is looking in couples therapy and making sure that I understand from their perspective. But that's a very powerful way to do some work because there are some things, especially things that have to do with past trauma, like earlier trauma, family of origin dynamics that are well suited for individual therapy. And then the couples therapy space is able to be more reserved for working on relationship dynamics. Yeah, it's challenging for sure. And I also see the difference in some people for sure of when they show up and they can do the individual work outside. It's such a, it's such a powerful team. You've got, you've got someone in your individual corner and then you also have that couples person. Alexandra, when you think of the work you do with couples, what is the top thing? do you think that you teach or want people to learn when they're working with you in couples? I think the most, you mentioned earlier and you write about it in chapter five, which is why I pulled it out for our conversation because I just love it so much. In chapter five, you propose an exercise that to me is just the heart of couples therapy, which is when your partner is upset, can you practice seeing them as having a separate experience from you. That I feel like is what everything goes back to. It's moving from that myopic view of this is the story of what happened. This is what happened to a wider sense of I experienced A, my partner experienced B. That is fascinating more than it is threatening. And it is in toggling between my view and your view, my intent and the impact it had on you, your intent and the impact it had on me. Like that's the heart of it is just like helping people be able to sit with a little bit of a thicker, more rich and nuanced story of what's happening than that knee jerk go to, you did that thing. Why would you do that thing? You know, so that exercise that you have people work on when your partner is upset, can you practice seeing them as having a separate experience from you? is so vital. Why was that? What, tell me what that was that. Does that kind of strike to the heart of the whole darn thing for you as well? Oh yeah. I, I mean that I use this analogy in therapy and it, it's one of my go-tos and it really resonates with people. So we have this 
beautiful footbridge. I spent my PhD crossing it every day back and forth. And on one side, you are standing in the old downtown part, the little neighborhood. And from that side of the bridge, you're looking at the university. And so then you cross over the footbridge over the, the Rideau Canal. And then when you stand on the other side of the bridge, you're looking at the old neighborhood. And at the heart of it, what I, would, I invite couples to do, partners to do, is can you imagine leaving your view and your perspective on your side and cross the bridge? I know that's so hard to cross that bridge. I want you to go on that other side and to hang out with your partner in their thoughts and feelings. Not that you are responsible for them or you have to take them on or you have to heal all of, all of that, but just to see what's it like for them over there. And then can you then take turns and ask your partner to come to your side and then to see? And it's such a powerful analogy, I think, because it reminds us that, again, there's no right or wrong. You are you and I am me and we're both okay. And it's the practice, which for many of us, and you and I could have a whole different conversation around this, but it's what so many of us have come to realize is that we didn't get that growing up. And parents today are, are changing this in the sense that children, very much, we grew up with shame-based parenting, with being blamed, with telling us to be good kids, to be the good girl or to be the good boy or to not feel these emotions. And that teaches us to not learn how to differentiate and separate in a healthy way. And I think of, uh, we do consultation in, in the clinic here. And one of the things we often talk about is how the narratives often show up around really feeling, and I don't like to use terms, but what, what, it, what the word that keeps being used is around being a victim, around things happening to you. Rather than seeing, and the example we used recently was, this is just in consultation, we're using this example, but you know, you agree to meet your friend at four o'clock and it's four o'clock and they don't show up. It's 4.10, you text, they don't respond to you and you wait till 4.30, you wait till five and then you decide not to say anything and then you meet again and then this is something that's happening to you rather than seeing that sense of agency as well for you to say, huh, it's 4.10, they haven't shown up, I text them. They're not responding. I don't know what I want to do next, but I'm not going to wait any longer because the other person didn't make you wait a whole hour. You chose to wait an hour and then you chose not to say anything. That is like that example is the gentlest, but most clear way of reminding us to take responsibility for our part of the dance. You're right. Sitting there for the additional 50 minutes is going to lead to a whole cascade of emotions inside of you, and it is not because they made you wait. But that is so, in an, in an intimate relationship, this stuff happens so quickly, and it happens so subtly, and I think there are times when we will do that to ourselves because now, if you see me suffering like this, now do you get it? If I suffer like this, now do you get it? And there's ways that we just participate in our own misery in ways that we don't have to. So I love, I mean, that's a really effective way of inviting people to remember their agency, their power. And to the little, you know, the little girl or little boy that lives inside of you, they didn't have that kind of agency, but you do now and you get to now. Yeah. The autonomy, it's that you and I talk about that with our, with the work we do, the autonomy and the intimacy and wrestling with the tension between the two. Which, again, comes back to what you and I both said is, can I see that you are having a separate experience from me? And how can we then co-create this space together? I love this. I love that we're simultaneously guests on each other's show. And I hope that we will do it again. I really I hope so, like too. There's such, just such good connection in how we approach the work that we do. And um, you've been such a wonderful conversation partner. Thank you, Alexandra. And I'm so glad that we've been able to sit together and to also celebrate our books coming into the world and other people grabbing them. I'm going to have all of the links in the show notes so that people can grab it. This is one that I think we all need to have on our bookshelves. I know my husband and I will be pulling it out and getting really curious with each other. So thank you. Thank you for your work.
Thank you, Dr. Tracy, for joining me here on the podcast for a wonderful conversation about books and couples therapy and connection. If you are eager to crack open Dr. Tracy's fantastic book, which I'm sure you are after this rich conversation, make sure you check out I Didn't Sign Up For This by following the link in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.